Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, June 22, 2023 reading of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. News to give and to get. Local lifelong volunteer is one of nearly 100,000 people nationwide waiting for a kidney by Will Matuska, June 22, 2023. There are few places Jeff Blumenfeld hasn't been. He's traveled to the farthest reaches of the world, from Antarctica to the easternmost town in Russia. Most of his experiences stem from expeditions, like when he escorted media to an indigenous village on Baffin Island, or from volunteer trips such as supporting cataract surgery in remote Nepalese villages. But the expeditioner and outdoorsman started a journey into uncharted territory in April 2022. With only one kidney after losing the first to cancer, Blumenfeld's remaining kidney was failing. Quote, I was in denial, unquote, Blumenfeld says, from a brown wingback chair in his living room. He couldn't bring himself to tell friends and family. Now the 71-year-old is on dialysis to remove waste products from the bloodstream. His life is tied to the treatment. Quote, Living on dialysis is very difficult, says James Cooper, medical director at UC Health Transplant Center. You lose a lot of your freedom. It's oftentimes hard to be employed, and so many patients are living on disability because of the time commitments of dialysis, unquote. Since starting dialysis in February, Blumenfeld lives a constrained lifestyle. He hasn't spent a night outside of his home. He retired early. Weekly visits to the transplant center can take hours at a time. Quote, now don't get me wrong, it's good there's a thing called dialysis, he says, but it's a real ball and chain, unquote. There are nearly 100,000 people like Blumenfeld waiting for a deceased donor kidney across the country, according to the National Kidney Foundation. In Colorado, patients on a list of more than 1,000 may have to wait five years or more. Cooper says UC Health may match recipients with donors a little faster than average nationally, but it's hard to measure because waiting times fluctuate, quote, quite a bit, unquote. In some regions, Cooper says, the wait can reach 10 years. 
Scott Ruth is an electrical engineer living in Evergreen who donated one of his kidneys earlier this year. Quote, I just wanted to do something, he says. I feel pretty privileged on this planet, and it felt like something I could do. And then when I looked into it, it turned into something I felt like I should do, because there's not really a lot of downsides in my mind, unquote. If I had three kindies, I'd do, give two. Rather than selecting a specific treatment, Ruth completed a non-directed donation, which makes up about 3% of all living kidney donations. He was, quote, prepared for the worst, unquote, after surgery, but was surprised with how easy recovery was. Quote, if I had three kidneys, I'd give two, unquote, he says. Ruth says he doesn't feel any different post-donation and still enjoys mountain biking with his wife regularly. In 2024, he plans on climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Quote, I don't consider myself that special, he says. There's people that have to live through dialysis. That's just not a way to live, unquote. Last year, Colorado saw a record number of kidney donations, 471, which has steadily increased over the last three decades, according to the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. Typically, about two-thirds of kidney transplants are from deceased donors, while the other third comes from living donors. Living donations have numerous benefits for recipients compared to deceased donations, including shorter wait periods and lasting longer once surgery is complete. But there's still a gap between supply and demand. The National Kidney Foundation found that 3,000 people are added to their wait list every month, while 14 people die each day waiting. Cheryl Talley, Director of Communications at the Donor Alliance, says it's still hard to find kidney donors. She calls it a, quote, miracle, unquote, to have a living donor match with a recipient. When matching a donor with a recipient, transplant centers consider things like age, blood type, urgency, and distance. It doesn't have to be a perfect match. Many transplant centers offer kidney swaps when a patient has a living donor who is not compatible for transplant or treatments like plasmapheresis that allow incompatible matches. But since transplant centers cannot seek living donors, that leaves people experiencing kidney failure to find them. Blumenfeld knows four people have come forward to donate to him, but they haven't worked out. He says you have to become, quote, the poster child for kidney donation, unquote, to find a, don a donor. Quote, you have to work on it every day, he says. What did I do today to move one baby step forward, unquote. Despite feeling restricted by dialysis, Blumenfeld is still active by playing pickleball, fly fishing, skiing, and spending time with his two grandchildren. 
He still volunteers with multiple organizations such as VoicesCenter.org, a leading victims advocacy group for those affected by the events of 9-11. Quote, Volunteering, for me, has been an opportunity to see other lives, experience what people are going through, he says, and maybe there's a way I can help, unquote. If he receives a kidney, Blumenfeld plans to create a template for those awaiting kidney transplant with the goal of getting kidneys to people faster. Quote, I can't save the whole world, he says, but maybe I can save a little tiny piece of it through volunteer work, unquote. Visit kidney.org to learn more about kidney donation. Learn more about Blumenfeld at jeffskidneysearch.com. News Now You Know. This week's news in Boulder County and beyond by Will Matuska, June twenty second, 2023. Boulder discusses raising occupancy limit. Nearly two years after a failed ballot initiative, Boulder City Council discussed raising the residential occupancy limit at its June 15 meeting with the goal of increasing affordable housing options. Generally, the city's occupancy limit allows three unrelated people to live together in low-density zoning districts, more than half of Boulder's land area, and four in high-density zones. In a March study session, Council asked city staff to analyze the outcome of increasing the occupancy limit to four or five citywide. In a presentation to Council, Carl Guiller, the city's senior policy advisor, said 18% of the units in the three-person zones are rentals, whereas nearly 60% of units in the four-person zones are rentals. Increasing occupancy, then, could give more people renting opportunities. He also said the potential impacts of increasing occupancy limits include on-street parking issues and more trash and noise violations. In a 6-3 to three poll vote, council showed support for increasing the occupancy to five unrelated people throughout the city. A survey on Be Heard Boulder, the city's online engagement platform, showed more community support for raising the occupancy limit to four rather than five, but Gwiller told council it isn't intended to be a, quote, statistically valid representation, unquote. Council member Tara Weiner prefers increasing the limit to four unrelated people and looking into, quote, carving out, unquote, areas like University Hill neighborhood to have a lower occupancy limit. Weiner wants to, quote, raise occupancy in other neighborhoods so more people who want to live here, who work here, can actually afford to live here, unquote. But she believes the hill is a different story, in part because it's already difficult for people living in the neighborhood to find street parking. Quote, for us to have success in increasing occupancy, we should have the infrastructure that can handle it, unquote, she says. 
Weiner admitted that making exceptions to occupancy limits in some neighborhoods would take more time and resources from staff. A citywide occupancy limit is simpler, more efficient. Brad Mueller, the Director of Planning and Housing Services, told Council that city staff hasn't found definitive answers as to whether increasing the housing stock through occupancy limits would drive an increase or decrease in rent. City Council will vote on updating the ordinance on August 17, following public comment. New Organization Forms to Help Homeless After stepping down as Directive Executive Director of Feet Forward, Jennifer Livovich is starting a new homelessness advocacy nonprofit called Streetscape Peer Support Services and Outreach. Livovich founded Feet Forward in 2020 to provide low barrier services such as food and personal care items to people experiencing homelessness. While details like location and partnerships are still developing, Livovich says Streetscape is centered around a, quote, progressive peer engagement model, unquote, that focuses on individuals experiencing homelessness and those who are transitioning into housing. Most of her feet forward colleagues will continue their work with Streetscape, quote, We've got the trust and relationships critical to getting individuals experiencing homelessness or who were experiencing homelessness engaged in services, including housing and wraparound peer support, she says. How and why would we ever go away? Unquote. Livovich says she stepped down from feet forward because of its involvement in the American Civil Liberty Union's ACLU lawsuit against the city of Boulder over its, quote, blanket ban, unquote, that prevents sleeping in public spaces despite inadequate shelter options in the city. While Livovich was one of the original plaintiffs alongside Feet Forward, she pulled out of the case as an individual at the end of February while the organization stayed involved. <clears throat> quote, this lawsuit isn't going to change anything for homeless people, she says. It's not going to change anything for them at all. That time, energy, and resources would be much better utilized advocating for accessible recovery spaces, transitional housing, not a blanket, unquote. Learn more about Streetscape and its mission at streetscapebolder.org. Local nonprofit recognized for Marshall Fire response. Community Foundation Boulder County, CFBC, received the 2023 Secretary's Award for Public Philanthropic Partnerships on June 14. The award is given to foundations that, quote, transformed the relationship between the public and philanthropic sectors, unquote and support areas like housing, community development, and disaster resilience. Quote, This is much bigger than us, says Tatiana Hernandez, CEO of CFBC. 
The award was for public philanthropic partnerships. And in the case of the foundations and our community's response to the Marshall Fire, those public philanthropic relationships included every single municipality in Boulder County, as well as multiple state offices. It really has been a coordinated collective effort to do everything we can and could do to support residents in this community, unquote. Nine organizations from across the country received the award from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development and the Council on Foundations. More than $40 million was donated to CFBC's Boulder County Wildfire Fund from 77,000 donors following the Marshall Fire to address the most destructive wildfire in Colorado's history. The foundation distributed this unprecedented amount of funding, it typically distributes $10 million annually, to projects like crisis counseling, insurance policy navigation, and smoke remediation. Despite the successful distribution of millions of dollars, there was some confusion in the community through 2022 surrounding why it took so long to receive funds and how to receive funds. See News in Limbo, December 29, 2022. Now, nearly two years after the disaster, communities are still rebuilding damaged homes and infrastructure. See News, Now You Know, June 15, 2023. The Navigating Disaster for Boulder County program, which started a year ago to help people in the county experience relief from disasters and funded in part by CFBC, has approved nearly $8.5 million to more than 350 grant rebuilding funds. While more than half of the homes destroyed or damaged are in the rebuilding permitting process, only 4% of people have moved back into their homes. Quote, we still very much are working through our partners and with residents in the community who might need support with basic things like housing and transportation, Hernandez says. And funds are still available for people who might find themselves in financial strain right now to make those basic ends meet, unquote. Opinion, letters, signed, sealed, delivered, your views, by readers like you, June twenty second, 2023. Longmont Farmers Market, FTW. I really enjoyed reading your article, Sibling Rivalry, Nibbles, June 15, 2023. I agree that the Longmont Farmers Market is a fun market for family and kids. I'm a musician and have lived in Boulder since 1974. I can't believe how much Boulder has changed, and I feel sad. Longmont feels a bit like Boulder did in the 1970s. On Saturday, when we played music at the Longmont Market, kids and adults were dancing to our music. And on our breaks, we got to visit the awesome vendors and eat a great meal. It's a great setup for playing music under the shelter. (laughs) 
I especially would like to thank the Longmont community for their generosity. Besides being so fun and engaged, we always collect great tips in Longmont, which is interesting to me as so much wealth has moved into Boulder, and tips at the Boulder Farmer's Market hardly compare. Thank you, Longmont. From Lori Dameron, Boulder. Tech Jobs in Illinois I have a question regarding the letter in the June 8, 2023 Boulder Weekly bridging the confidence gap in the tech market. Why is Hannah Johnson in Downers Grove, Illinois, trying to recruit people for tech jobs in Boulder, Colorado? Seems like there are plenty of people working in tech jobs here in Boulder, recklessly driving their expensive cars, often with expired out-of-state license plates, and living entitled lives. Maybe some ought to move to Illinois and work at home from there. From R. Lawrence in Boulder. Opinion. The Anderson Files. RFK Jr.'s anti-vax MAGA parroting 60s nostalgia campaign by Dave Anderson, June 22, 2023. Moments after President John F. Kennedy was murdered in 1963, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy was frantically making phone calls trying to find out who did it. He told a colleague that day, quote, There's so much bitterness, I thought they would get one of us, unquote. He immediately suspected powerful domestic enemies in the Pentagon, the CIA, the FBI, and the Mafia. RFK would publicly accept the Warren Commission's conclusion that his brother was assassinated by a lone gunman, but privately he believed there was a conspiracy until his own death by assassination in 1968. That's the story told by David Talbot in Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years. Talbot is the founder and former editor of the online magazine Salon. His 2007 book is based on extensive interviews with a large number of Kennedy friends and colleagues and their widows, sons, and acquaintances. Talbot has known Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for two decades. When Talbot told Jr. he was writing a book about seniors' secret search for the truth about JFK's assassination, Jr. discouraged him, saying, quote, My family always taught us to look forward, not back, unquote. Jr. would eventually change his mind and begin his own research, he now says he believes the CIA was involved in both his uncle and father's assassinations. RFK Jr. is now running for president in the Democratic primary, but so far he hasn't talked about the assassinations in his campaign. However, in his long announcement speech broadcast on C-SPAN, Jr. did invoke the idealistic liberalism of the 1960s that is associated with his uncle and father. I agreed with many of his assertions, but the speech was vague. It could have been delivered by a wide variety of Democratic Party politicians. So is this just a 60s nostalgia trip? It's actually a much weirder and more disturbing journey. 
This spring, a photo was distributed of RFK Jr. with former Trump administration national security advisor Mike Flynn, anti-vaccine proponent Charlene Bollinger, and Trump whisperer slash longtime political dirty trickster Roger Stone. The photo was taken at a Flynn-sponsored Reawaken America Tour rally in California in July 2022. RFK Jr. has appeared at such rallies in the past. Lisa Hagen of NPR reported, quote, Each stop of the tour is part conservative Christian revival, part QAnon Expo, and part political rally. There are meets and greets, a buffet, and lately, baptism and the casting out of demons, unquote. On May 8, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow reported that a Reawaken America event was being hosted at the Miami-based Trump-owned National Doral. Two of the speakers, Scott McKay and Charlie Ward, are vehement Hitler-praising anti-Semites. Eric Trump, his wife Lara, and, quote, a whole bunch of other Trump administration folks, unquote, would also speak. <clears throat> McKay claims Jews torture children and eat their hearts, and that, quote, Hitler was actually fighting the same people that we're trying to take down today, unquote. He says Jews were responsible for 9-11, the Oklahoma City bombing, and the assassinations of Lincoln, McKinley, and JFK. At an event on the tour, Ward said the COVID vaccine had killed more people than the Holocaust. He once shared a post claiming, quote, viruses, in all caps, are man, parenthesis, Jew, all caps, close parenthesis, made, including influenza, polio, measles, AIDS. So was COVID created as a excuse to vaccinate, contaminate, unquote. McKay and Ward were dropped from a few dates on the tour after Maddow's report, despite Eric Trump threatening to sue Maddow. RFK Jr. decided to no longer participate in the Reawaken America Roadshow. MAGA stars like former Trump advisor Steve Bannon, InfoWars host Alex Jones, and Roger Stone are enthusiastic about RFK Jr. Axios reports that several libertarian-leaning tech moguls in Silicon Valley are supportive. On June 5th, RFK Jr. participated in a chat on Twitter with Elon Musk, David Sachs, a top donor to Ron DeSantis, and Tulsi Gabbard. Kennedy told them he wanted to close the Mexican border permanently and claimed pharmaceutical drugs were responsible for mass shootings. RFK Jr. was once a crusading environmental lawyer fighting corporations. He now says, quote, free market capitalism, unquote, is the answer to all environmental problems. He is leaving energy policy to the market and says talk about climate change encourages totalitarianism. He's a pathologi he is a pathological liar. It is difficult to fact-check him in real time. Does that sound familiar? 
Bannon and Stone want RFK Jr. to run as Trump's vice president. This opinion does not necessarily reflect the views of Boulder Weekly. Opinion, Boulder Gannick, Local Forests Under Fire. Nearly all taxpayer funding and attention is focused on scientifically debunked, quote, wildfire risk reduction, unquote, logging in our public forests. By Josh Schlossberg, June 22, 2023. A slew of so-called wildfire risk reduction logging projects are proposed for tens of millions of acres of public forests across the western U.S., three and a half million acres in the front range alone, with several already completed or underway in Boulder and Jefferson counties. The 2021 Federal Infrastructure Bill allotted more than $3 billion to the supposed goal of, quote, reducing exposure of people, communities, and natural resources to the risk of catastrophic wildfire, unquote, with Colorado Representative Joe Neguse and Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper seeking another $60 billion. Coupled with a federal emergency action that expedites the removal of so-called, quote, hazardous fuels, unquote, a.k.a. trees, while skirting certain legal objections, our public forests are seeing more logging than they have in decades. Before we move things any further down the road, is it not worth a look at some independent, non-agency funded science? You've likely heard the claim that decades of fire suppression has led to, quote, overgrown, unquote, and, quote, unhealthy, unquote, forests that threaten those of us living in the wildland urban interface. It's a narrative upheld by the forest products and biomass energy industries, federal, state, county, and municipal government agencies, and elected officials on both sides of the aisle. It's true that over the last three years, Colorado experienced three of its largest and most costly wildfires in a century, each human-caused. But if we go back to early 20th and 19th century records prior to fire suppression, we find that dense forests and severe wildfires were the norm. An April 2023 study in the peer-reviewed journal Fire found that, quote, Abundant independent sources in more than half of the 11 western states, including Colorado, agreed that historically dry forests were highly variable in tree density and included a substantial area of dense forests, unquote. A 2014 study in PLOS 1 concluded that across 54 sampled sites in local front-range forests, quote, 81% showed mixed and high-severity fire effects prior to fire suppression, quote, unquote, while above 6,000 feet, quote, fire severities prior to any fire exclusion effects was sufficient to kill high percentages of mature trees, unquote. 
But that doesn't change the fact that wildfires are burning near communities built at the forest's edge. So don't we still need to cut trees? Except in a 2020 letter to Congress, 200 of the nation's scientists wrote, quote, Reduced forest protections and increased logging tend to make wildland fires burn more intensely. Or, unquote, or as a 2016 study in Ecosphere put it, quote, Forests with the highest levels of protection from logging tend to burn least severely, unquote. Some might object that, quote, fire risk reduction, unquote, isn't about logging, but thinning. Of course, that euphemism is used to justify clear-cutting and logging mature and even old-growth trees up to 129 years old, including right now in Jefferson and Boulder counties. What's more, in cases when it is truly thinning, studies find even these treatments ineffective at stopping the spread of wildfire. For instance, a study in forest ecology and management referencing the 2002 Hayman Fire north of Colorado Springs, the largest in almost a century prior to 2020, found that, quote, fuel breaks and treatments were breached by massive spotting and intense surface fires, unquote. And that, quote, suppression efforts had little benefit from fuel modifications, unquote. A Forest Service study discovered that during 2010's Four Mile Canyon fire outside Boulder, thinned forests, quote, burned more severely than neighboring areas where the fuels were not treated, unquote. A 2021 study in ecological applications sums up the reason why, concluding that thinning, quote, can lead to increased surface wind speed and fuel heating, which allows for increased rates of fire spread in thinned forests, unquote. Even thinning followed by prescribed burns, quote, may increase the risk of fire by increasing sunlight exposure to the forest floor, drying vegetation, promoting understory growth, and increasing wind speeds, unquote. And that's on top of the climate-driven heat and drought already triggering the big fires. Not to mention the ecological impacts, such as releasing stores of carbon into the atmosphere massive enough to negate U.S. emissions targets, destroying wildlife habitat, including that of species listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act, and contributing to widespread soil compaction and erosion. For instance, the Antelope Park Forest Health Project is 3,000 acres of logging in the protected Button Rock Preserve west of Lyons in Boulder County. Photos taken on June 7 prove that freshly cut logging roads are currently dumping sediment into a stream flowing directly into the drinking water supply for Longmont. CDPHE's Water Quality Control Division is currently investigating the complaint. Photos can be found at bit.ly slash antelope park photos. 
It turns out the Forest Service has actually known how to protect us from wildfire for decades. Indeed, its Rocky Mountain Research Station's Fire Sciences Laboratory found that measures such as metal roofs and maintaining defensible space immediately around a structure, recent studies find 15 to 60 feet to be most effective, can save up to 95% of homes from the most catastrophic wildfires. Then why have so few homes actually been hardened? Because nearly all the taxpayer funding and attention is focused on scientifically debunked wildfire risk reduction logging in our public forests. Josh Sloshberg is an award-winning science writer and sometimes organizer hiding out along the front range. This opinion does not necessarily reflect the views of Boulder Weekly. Features Weed between the lines. Shifting perspectives. Federal health agency says cannabis addiction is rampant. The public disagrees. By Will Brenza, June 22nd, 2023. As cannabis legalization spreads across the country, addiction has become the rallying cry for opposition. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, claim, quote, cannabis use disorder, unquote, affects 30% of users. People who develop it use marijuana impulsively, quote, even though it is causing health and social problems in their life, unquote. Researchers at Columbia recently designed an experimental drug to treat cannabis use disorder, calling their preliminary findings, quote, very encouraging, unquote. According to the CDC's own data, more than 48 million Americans use cannabis regularly, around 18% of the national population. If the CDC's assertions about the prevalence of cannabis use disorder are correct, that means some 14 million Americans, 5%, are using cannabis to the point of physical and social detriment. For a bit of perspective, the CDC says opioid use disorder currently affects just 3 million Americans. Despite this grim epidemic apparently destroying lives across the country, the perception of cannabis is trending positively in the U.S., more people are using it and more scientific research is being conducted on it than ever before. The stigma that has built up around this herb over decades is finally starting to dissolve. A new poll published by the American Psychiatric Association, APA, this month lends credence to that. It shows that most adults in the U.S. generally perceive cannabis as safe, safer than alcohol and cigarettes at least, and that as far as addiction goes, people believe it's even less addictive than technology. The annual APA survey polled more than 2,000 adults about technology, cigarettes, cannabis, vapes, alcohol, unprescribed opioids, and prescribed opioids. Respondents were asked how often they engage in the use of each, then if they considered them to be very unsafe 
or somewhat unsafe, and if they viewed them as very addictive or somewhat addictive. The results aren't exactly surprising. No one thinks cigarettes are healthy, 84%. And it seems like word is out about vapes, too, with 76% labeling them unsafe. A quarter of respondents called non-prescription opioids unsafe, while 66% believe even prescription opioids are risky. A whopping 65% consider alcohol harmful. Only 38% characterized cannabis as, quote, very or somewhat unsafe, unquote. The only category deemed safer than cannabis in the eyes of respondents was technology, which only 23% described as unsafe. When it came to scoring the level of addictiveness, the results were similarly ranked with a couple notable differences. More than 60% said they believe cannabis can be addictive, and technology was described by 75% of respondents as, quote, very or somewhat addictive, unquote. Quote, it is clear that we have gotten the message through that cigarettes are dangerous and addictive, unquote, APA President Petros Levunas said in a press release. Tobacco and cigarette education and public awareness campaigns have helped reduce use significantly across the country since they were implemented in the 90s. Quote, we can help prevent more Americans from other potentially addictive behaviors like drinking alcohol and technology use, unquote, Levunas said. To that end, the APA is launching a public awareness campaign focusing specifically on vaping and opioids this summer, then another focusing on alcohol, and a fourth targeting technology by the end of the year. However, the APA made no mention of any plans to pursue a campaign targeting cannabis. Entertainment Screen Turtles All the Way Down Asteroid City is a series of engaging but not entirely convincing puzzle boxes by Michael J. Casey, June 22, 2023. The play's The Thing, and for Conrad Earp, Edward Norton, a Tennessee Williams type with a predilection for Tom of Finland cowboy art, his new play is sure to be the one that wakes the audience up or puts them to sleep, maybe both. It's called Asteroid City, and it's set in a small town of the same name on the border between California, Arizona, and New Mexico. Small is being generous. Eighty-some people call Asteroid City home, and they either work at the boxcar diner, the resort cabins, or the asteroid crater's scenic overlook. Off in the distance, the U.S. Army continues to test atomic bombs, but the town folk don't seem to mind. Nor do they mind the long-forgotten, never-finished overpass ramp and the endless chase between cops and robbers down Asteroid City's main drag. 
All of this is presented in precise framing and camera pans, fastidious production design, controlled color palettes, and robotic performances from nearly two dozen named characters that move through the sets as if trapped in a diorama. That's probably the point. And I probably don't have to tell you that Asteroid City is the new film from director Wes Anderson. Teaming again with co-writer Roman Coppola, it's an unusual movie, even in Anderson's oeuvre. To call this film fussy seems like a no-brainer, but Asteroid City feels more hermetically sealed than his previous work. Darker, too. For reasons I won't get into, because it would either spoil the plot or sound too complicated to untangle. This is all by design, which also sounds like an obvious observation. So it goes. The city of Asteroid City looks like a movie set. Not that it looks like it was shot on one, but that it is a candy-coated, fabricated set existing somewhere between those mid-century case study houses and radiator springs. It's a fantasy from a time when the present still fantasized about itself. The players are many. Augie Steenbeck, played by Jason, Jason Schwartzman, is a recent widower who doesn't know how to tell his children their mother died. Midge Campbell, Scarlett Johansson, is an actress known for her moody sexuality, but wants to be a comedian. General Griff Gibson, Jeffrey Wright, has come to present awards to the junior stargazers for their achievements and technological innovation. Inventions include a jetpack, a laser gun, and a way to project images of the moon for intergalactic advertisement. Steve Carroll plays the motel manager. Matt Dillon plays Asteroid City's one and only mechanic. And Rupert Friend wanders around as a good-natured cowboy in denim buttoned up to here. Asteroid City is a trying movie at times, magical at others. The speech General Gibson gives about his story up until now is one of the most electric and captivating pieces of writing and performance in theaters these days. Then there's Brian Cranston as the host. Cut from the Rod Serling cloth, he introduces viewers of Asteroid City, the movie, to Asteroid City, the setting, and Asteroid City, the play. Anderson and Coppola take this conceit further, adding title cards for act and scene numbers, choosing artifice over naturalism any chance they can. The one exception is the presence of Stanley, Tom Hanks, who has a habit of stepping on other actors' lines following pregnant pauses. It's a nice bit that introduces some awkward realism, as if Anderson is saying, quote, Try as you might, you can't control everything, unquote. That's what Asteroid City is about, control. Conrad is trying to control the actors in his play, the actors in his play are trying to control the situation, and Anderson is trying to control both, and our reactions, too. Maybe that's why it feels so airless, even when one character makes a Pirandello-esque break in search of meaning. meaning. Asteroid City has gumption, I'll give it that, but it also lacks the heart to land it. 
Asteroid City opens in theaters on June 23. Entertainment, music, homeward bound. Indie folk fixture Sira Cahoon returns to the front range for her Red Rocks debut by Adam Perry, June 22, 2023. She may have left Colorado in the late 90s, but Seattle-based musician Sira Cahoon returns often to her hometown of Littleton. In fact, the Centennial State has such a special place in the heart of the alt-folk singer-songwriter that she titled her most well-known album, Deer Creek Canyon. Quote, my whole family's there, so I try to get home at least twice a year, unquote, Cahoon says. Quote, I have a lot of people that are really important to me still there, so I try to go back as much as I can. I still feel like Colorado, to me, is my home, unquote. Before leaving the front range for the Pacific Northwest, Cahoon played the drums in various bands, and she continued that in Washington, drumming for Carissa's Weird and Patrick Park, and even on Band of Horses' 2006 debut album, Everything All the Time. Eventually, she wanted to do her own thing. Quote, I was just kind of wanting to take a break and try to start playing open mics and stuff. You know, play guitar and make myself uncomfortable, she says. I played drums all the time, but I was feeling a little limited in my creativity. A lot of times, being a drummer, you have to rely on other people. I just wanted more. I never was like, oh, I want to be a singer. I think I have this amazing voice or can write these amazing songs. I just wanted to try, and I feel like it came pretty natural to me." Unquote. Cahoon self-released an eponymous album in 2006 that tastemakers KEXP and NPR Music fell in love with, leading to a deal with Sub Pop Records, famously the early home of Mudhoney, Nirvana, and Soundgarden. The label was in the midst of another classic period in 2008, releasing albums by Fleet Foxes, The Helio Sequence, Flight of the Concords, and Cahoon, whose earnest and inviting Only As the Day Is Long put her on the map as a twangy indie folk staple. My very, quote, my very first record I just kind of did on my own, she says. I played all the drums and kind of pieced it together. It was for sure the first record that is pretty much all band. I could say that my band definitely had a big part in forming a lot of the songs, unquote. Though Cahoon's solo career launched out of Seattle, her Colorado roots lend a down-home element to her brand of indie music. You'll hear it on tracks like Nervous Wreck, which have an almost bluegrassy feel. Quote, I love country, Cahoon says. I don't necessarily come from the country, but that's what I listened to the majority of the time. Moving to Seattle, I was pretty obsessed with what was going on, like Nirvana and all the grunge and Bikini Kill, you know, female empowerment. I just thought it was cool. But growing up, I definitely listened to a lot of folk and a lot of 70s music, which I still do. Coming into this environment, I was more into indie rock in these ways I was a part of. 
So I was definitely thinking the two collided in an interesting way, unquote. With family and friends still in Colorado, Cahoon continues to keep one foot in the Centennial State. She has even toured a few times opening for Boulder's Gregory Allen Isakov, whose guitarist, Steve Varney, is a fellow Columbine High School alum. Despite all that Colorado history, though, Cahoon has never played the state's most iconic venue, Red Rocks, until now. She opens for the head and the heart alongside Raylan Baxter on Thursday, June 29, at the storied Morrison Amphitheater. Quote, I mean, I've tried, she jokes. I'm like, Gregory, get me on there. But it's just never happened. I'm going to lose my mind, unquote. As she prepares to mark the upcoming milestone in her home state, Cahoon looks back on her memories of seeing legendary artists like Tracy Chapman and P.J. Harvey at Red Rocks. She used to go there with her family on Christmas Eve every year as a kid, but returning to perform on the stage that loomed so large throughout her childhood will be a different kind of gift. Quote, It's so close to where I grew up that I would always be like, oh, wow, if I play Red Rocks, I've made it. I'm going to retire. I'm done. And now I'm like, well, I don't want to quit, Cahoon says. There's just something about those rocks and the setting and all the history of it that just means so much to me. I'm going to try and be as present as I can and enjoy it and hopefully play there again, unquote. On the bill, The Head and the Heart, with Raylan Baxter and Sarah Cahoon, 7.30 p.m., Thursday, June 29, Red Rocks Amphitheater, 18300 West Alameda Parkway in Morrison. You can find tickets at www.axs.com. Cuisine Nibbles, Boulder's Michelin Moment. When they wish for culinary stardom, chefs never know if they'll get kudos or a conundrum. By John Lendorf, June 22, 2023. For a restaurant, nothing beats a Michelin star award. It instantly bestows legitimacy and puts the local food scene on the map. When the announcement came June 14 that the Michelin Guide will begin awarding stars in Colorado this year, my first reaction was a fist-pumping, it's about damn time. Frankly, the dining in our state has been first class for years. I've written about the ups and downs of Colorado food since the 1980s, including a seven-year stint as the anonymous dining critic for the Rocky Mountain News. I saw how reviews impacted the success of restaurants positively and negatively. With that in mind, my second reaction to the Michelin announcement was, "Uh uh-oh, be careful when you wish upon a Michelin star. The honor comes with so much expense and baggage that a few chefs have simply declined the distinction. Michelin said its cadre of covert critics are already visiting restaurants in Boulder, Aspen Snowmass, Denver, and Vail, Beaver Creek. Only a handful of eateries can meet Michelin's stringent food and service demands. 
The likely bolder suspects include Frosca Food and Wine, Flagstaff House, Basta, Blackbelly, Corrida, and Oak at 14th. Quote, Colorado has a rich culinary community that includes both established notable chefs and innovative up-and-comers, unquote, the guide organization said in the June 14 announcement. The other current Michelin North American cities and regions are New York, Miami, Orlando, Tampa, Chicago, California, Washington, D.C., Toronto, and Vancouver. When a restaurant wins one, two, or three of those red Michelin stars, it means the eatery offers masterful and consistent execution of food, service, and ambience. It also most likely means it's an expensive dining experience that could require reservations a month or more ahead. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so I will read the remainder of this article next week. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.